It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. During World War II, the British King and Parliament called the country to seven distinct days of national prayer for the deliverance of the nation. Hey, this is Eric. And I'm burdened to see the same thing happen in America in 2020 as happened in Great Britain in the years 1940 through 1945. The people were desperate. They humbled themselves. They prayed. They repented. And God worked miracles and triumphed over evil. Church of Jesus Christ, this is our hour. Let's aggressively move into a position of humble dependence before the throne of grace and pray. To listen to this entire series on World War II, visit ellersley.com forward slash daily. This is a message uh, that is a little different in the, in the fact that as we've been going through uh, World War, the World War II landscape, we're in, we just finished VE Day, so there's victory in Europe and we're all celebrating, but we have this um, concern lingering on the horizon of the Cold War, which is eventually going to become the Cold War. And in a sense, I'm going to step back, and this comes from a, an email that Sandy sent to me, uh, and it stirred me, and I think as it did her, uh, just the significance of prayer in the church and in the nation of Great Britain throughout World War II. And I think the recall of this is very, very significant. Uh, In fact, part of what is going to happen in World War II is going to be a reference back to World War I, where they had one national day of prayer in Great Britain during World War I, and it seemed to trigger the events that are going to bring about the end of the war. And so you're going to see that in the beginning of World War II, that they're going to hearken back to that and say, guys, let's not forget that God sustained us as a nation then. Will he not do it now? And we have a tendency to detach ourselves from our history and even the history of God at work amongst us. And I think that's where piles of stones are very, very significant, where we freshly gather in the remembrances, not just of what he did in biblical times, but what he has done in our times, what he has done throughout history. Our God has not changed. Our God has not altered. And so in a sense, this is a pile of stones message, walking through what would be called the seven national calls to prayer for Great Britain during World War II. And to actually see what happened as a result of each of those seven days of prayer. And I think that's, that's very significant for us right now. And I think as Christians, we feel very thin and weak. It's very difficult to marshal the strength of the body of Christ as a whole right now because we're fractured. And so sometimes it takes a common enemy that is identified as Great Britain had the Nazis to rally the nation. In a strange way, that would be a tremendous blessing to us. Instead, we're more in a civil war type of situation where we're split and divided, even in the churches, over how we should handle a pandemic. And that's a very dangerous thing that we're facing, but nonetheless, a foe not altogether dissimilar from Nazism. There is something insidious that is attempting to erode our foundations, and we need to be very watchful. Very specifically, there's a pattern of behavior, and that starts with humility, and then it moves us to prayer. 
and then it moves us to a cleaning of house, and a, a removing of the stuff from our lives so that we could be sharp to live for Christ. So you're gonna recognize a phraseology here. This isn't the exact phrase, uh, but in Chronicles we have the statement, if my people will humble themselves and pray. So the name of this one is if my people pray, very simply. Uh, I almost called it the praying nation uh, because I, that would have been rather profound as well. But this is going to be a direct reference to something that many of us, if you're a pastor, you've brought up uh, this passage many times because it is a pattern passage. There actually are a lot of references that are similar in Scripture to this same thing. It's the if-then principle in Scripture where if you do this, I'm guaranteeing you this is an outcome. And that concept throughout scripture is based on the fidelity or the faithfulness of God and his word. He has given us his word and he has given his nature, his very person as the backing for it. It's like, hey, I'm trustworthy, I can't lie. And so therefore I'm gonna give you my word. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and they will pray and seek my face, they will turn from their wickedness, then, so God has an if then and he has multiple if thens in scripture. If anyone would humble themselves, repent, and believe, we know that they will be saved. There is a salvation that is found when someone humbles themselves, repents, and believes in Jesus. And we see the same if-then process throughout. God saves, and he saves at an individual level, and he saves at a national level when people do as he would ask them to do, and they agree with his word. So let's start out with 2 Chronicles 7.14 just as a meditation. I'm not sure why there's a uh, parenthetical <laughs> piece up there. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Fact. That's a truth. Now that's being spoken at the dedication of the temple of God, and so we have this pattern, which is, of course, to me, very, very significant in understanding even the timing of that, of recognizing that this, then, in the New Testament, this human body is going to be deemed the temple. And so the same principle of how they are to repent, how they are to go to Jerusalem, how they are to return to this place, there is something very significant to us as the body in knowing that we have become that house. Now, if this body will humble itself, will pray and seek his face, God is going to do something significant. So we have a guy that we're going to utilize today who uh, felt a burden for whatever reason during World War II to chronicle what God was doing. And so this man, who is an, his name is Dr. Victor Pierce, he's an eminent, he, he, he's passed away now, but he was an eminent scientist, archeological, archeologist, and theologian, and he wrote multiple books on this, but one of, this, one of these books had to do with God's interventions in World War II, in and through the prayer of the nation. And the reason he wrote it down, I'll actually give his reason, uh, it, rather interesting, but this is gonna be based on seven national calls to prayer in Great Britain in World War II from 1940 to 1945. World War II is gonna go from September 3rd, uh, 1939, uh, and so, but the prayers are not gonna start until 1940. Uh, World War II is gonna start with something known as a twilight war, a 
that's the best way that people can describe it. It's sort of hard to describe because World War I bursts into action and bloodshed is everywhere. I mean, you have the invasion of Belgium by the Germans and it's disaster and bomb blasts from the very beginning. World War II starts very differently. It's like a political war. It's like, hey, don't do that. All right, we wage war on you. And then everyone sort of has a stalemate going, now what do we do that we've waged war? <laughs> how, how are we supposed to do this? And so it's very different. But in 1940, you're going to see uh, right at May 12th when Germany is going to sweep into Belgium, Holland, and France, we have problems. And that's what's going to lead to Dunkirk. And it's going to lead to the first National Day of Prayer. <clears throat> so... Dr. Victor Pierce is going to give his basis for why he wrote these things down. It's fascinating. My record of these days of prayer as they occurred from 1940 to 1945 provided the details of each deliverance or victory which followed. Why did I do this? Because I knew that it would be useful for reminding Britain and the world in future years, and here I am doing at the age of 85. The 50th anniversary of D-Day was observed without any mention of those prayer days, when at the call of king and parliament, the majority of the population crowded into the churches and overflowed outside because they knew our position was desperate. Yet 50 years later, it's not even mentioned anymore. And so he said, this is the reason I, I even wrote it down in the first place, is I knew there may come a day when this needed to be reminded, uh, that we needed to re recall what God did. Of seven separate days of prayer called by king and parliament in the six years of war, as many as three were held within the first 12 months because the situation was known to be so desperate. In gratitude for deliverance after the war, the government passed a law. Listen to this. This is in gratitude for deliverance after the war. The government passed a law making Christian teaching in schools compulsory. Now it is difficult to get permission even to mention the name of Christ. And many children lack ethical and moral teaching. The results in our community life are obvious. Now that's not altogether different than the history of America right there. And that's precisely how we started too. The recognition in the very beginning after the Revolutionary War, which most people would have said was supernatural. There's no way we should have come out the other side of that one. We're gonna do the same things. We're gonna say we need to honor God in this country. Guys, we need to do whatever it takes to make sure this is, that we know who has saved us and who has spared us, who has poured out his grace on us. <clears throat> so prayer call number one, uh, May 28th, 1940. Uh, it's awkward because in his writings, he is going to say March 28th, and then he's going to say a week later. I do know when Dunkirk happened, and it, it would have been at the end of May, not March. And so I corrected it, even though I, technically I didn't look it up in the annals of British history to see when it was. He just said it was happened, and then it was right at Dunkirk, which was at the end of May, early June. So uh, prayer call number one, the Dunkirk disaster become the Dunkirk miracle. I'll let him describe it. I've gone through Dunkirk fairly exhaustively in this series. It's a tremendous uh, story. Britain was in a desperate situation. We were quite unprepared for war, and humanly speaking, we were left in an impossible situation. That situation worsened when France fell to the Nazis and the British army of only 350,000 men were hemmed in with backs to the sea at Dunkirk. All the protection that was left in Britain was a dad's army practicing drill with broomsticks. <laughs> well, that, that makes you feel secure, don't you? Of course, being a dad, I'm sort of like, what are you saying? Uh, <laughs> Before calling the nation to the first national day of prayer, Winston Churchill said he, said he had hard and heavy tidings to announce. The commander of the British forces, Lieutenant General Sir Frederick Morgan, said there was no way out barring a miracle. That miracle happened after the first day of prayer. 
So the reason I'm moving it to May is because Winston Churchill didn't even come into his, his position until May 13th, which means if Winston Churchill is going to say this before the first national day of prayer, it had to be at the end of May and not at the end of March. So there you see my, my reasoning. But uh, it's interesting that the Lieutenant General Sir Frederick Morgan said there was no way out barring a miracle. That miracle happened after the first day of prayer. Now, it's, it's hard to describe what happened in Dunkirk uh, in a simple way. And, you know, I could go through the whole story again, but it is, when you study it, you can't help but just stand in awe. And everyone in Great Britain could hardly believe it. Like, literally, they couldn't even fathom. Many of them were planning suicides in Great Britain. They knew that the Germans were coming. They knew they had no hope. And so the darkness that was over this continent, the depression, the, the desperation was so extreme. And then suddenly the English Channel totally calms. There's like a cloud cover overhead. And they're able to get a thousand little ships and boats over to the shorelines of France. This is like ocean territory. They're able to get it across in calm waters and bring them back. And even what's happening in the Nazi side where there's confusion and Hitler pulls back his attack, he could have easily swallowed them up. Instead, for the first time, he disobeys the voice, capital V voice is what it was known as, which is really weird, that Hitler was led by. He disobeys it for the first time. And it's like 300 plus thousand British soldiers escape. I mean, it's a remarkable story. And it followed a day of prayer, which is a remarkable thing to, to notate because that isn't usually how it's broadcast in history books, is that that was a national day of prayer. <clears throat> prayer call number two, the, and these are not calls by the church, by the way. This was king and parliament that were calling for these national day of prayer, national days of prayer. So this is the pending attack on the island of Great Britain. This is just in a few months later. You have, Great Britain is not prepared. And that, that was said uh, just a little earlier, but Great Britain is not prepared for this war. And sort of maybe the way we could feel even as the church, it's like we're really not prepared for the pandemic. I mean, most of us were caught off guard, we're off balance, we're dizzied by this, we're not exactly sure. It's not like we have a pre-decided idea of, okay, if there's ever a pandemic, here's what we're gonna do. If the governor ever issues a lockdown measure, here's what we're going to do. We've never even heard of this stuff. We've never even seen this type of stuff in our country. And so as a result, we're caught off balance. And that's the same thing that's happening here. Great Britain is caught off balance. They have not prepared for war. In fact, they have spent the past years disarming. Disarming is what they've been doing. So they're removing military gear as opposed to increasing it. It was so politically incorrect to produce military goods at this time because that would have been a symbol that we were going to go to war again and we know we're all not going to go to war again after World War I, right? We all know that. We've all agreed. Never again was the motto. Never again. So as a result, they're disarming. Meanwhile, Hitler is building this massive machine over there and Great Britain is disarming. And so this is where they're being caught now, disarmed and vulnerable. France falls and Great Britain is all by its lonesome with this mega military machine on the other side of the English Channel licking their chops. And as France uh, Patan had once said that uh, Great Britain will have its neck wrung like a chicken in three weeks. That's an American ambassador that comes back to Roosevelt, don't invest anything in Great Britain. There's no way they can stand. There's no way they'll make it out of this. 
So it's at the level of impossible. All the world leaders know it. They're going down. Even Great Britain knows they have no ability to fight it. Remember, all their soldiers are caught over in France just a few months earlier. I mean, they literally have no military even if they lose that. And they had to leave all their military equipment over there. They abandoned it all. They have nothing to defend their own country with other than prayer. Isn't that an interesting thing? So prayer call number two, the pending attack on the island of Great Britain, August 11th, 1940. So this is a description that Dr. Victor Pierce gives of this. Uh, The tennis courts were deserted except for a perplexed young man holding a tennis racket. He was completely alone. This is a Sunday morning. And I'm guessing maybe a lot of people played tennis on Sunday mornings. (laughs) To us, we'd be like, yeah, they're always abandoned. Uh, And... But this, I guess this must have stood out. Uh, and he says, this guy that's on the tennis court holding his racket says, where have they all gone? He exclaimed. They're all in church praying for national deliverance, I said. Why don't you go? I can't believe this. My pals ne- have never gone to church even once in their lives. <laughs> but this is how serious it became to the point. This is a, a, a call to the youth of the nation were called to pray. And so people, youth that had never even been in a church building were all packing in uh, to pray. Britain could not know that within the week that followed, the overweight Nazi airfield marshal Goring, it's interesting how that's how he describes him. He doesn't just call him the airfield marshal Goring, he calls him the overweight one. It's sort of like throw a jab at him while you're describing this. Commenced the first stage in the Battle of Britain. It failed. The relatively small British forces of Spitfires and Hurricanes shot down 180 Nazi bombers over southeast England. The rate of interception excelled by far anything that could be expected or explained by radar, said our air commander. Prayer call number three, which is less than a month later, which shows you how intense the Battle of Britain was. The Battle of Britain, which is the Luftwaffe, which is the air force of the Germans, are bombing, and the the uh, British have very little to defend with, so they're just taking it. You know, when a bomber is flying overhead and just dropping bombs on you, and there's not anything you can do other than hide from it, it's a tenuous situation at best. It's an extraordinary situation. Churchill refuses to leave London, refuses. He's like, I'm standing with my people, and that inspires the people to no end. Every day he walks amongst the rubble, even gets dirty picking people out. This is so un-British. You don't do that. You stay clean. You stay separate from the people. There's a definite caste system. He violates all of it and goes down to the people and is rescuing people. It's a profound picture. The whole season of the Battle of Britain is really moving when you study it. But it is a desperate situation. So prayer call uh, number three, September 8th, 1940. The answer again was immediate. And he's speaking the answer to this prayer. A more determined Nazi air attack was made by sending five fighter planes to accompany every single bomber during the week following. Yet against all odds, as many as 185 Nazi planes were shot down. In fact, Air Chief Marshal Doubting said, I will say with absolute conviction that I can trace the intervention of God. Humanly speaking, victory was impossible. And that was during the week following our third national day of prayer. And the newspapers were not afraid to print that statement by Doubting. Which is an interesting thing. It's like, why would they be afraid to do it? But he, after all these years, he's like just reflecting. They wouldn't print that now. But they printed it then, and it was so obvious to everyone. <clears throat> Prayer call number four, right before Operation Sea Lion. So if you ever try and study Operation Sea Lion, you're going to recognize that it never happened. It's just a concocted idea of Hitler's. Hitler was going to uh, go across the English Channel, just like you're going to see Britain and American uh, do on D-Day. They're going to cross the English Channel and have an amphibious attack 
on the beaches of Normandy. That's what Hitler had planned to attack the beaches of Great Britain. And it was called Operation Sea Lion. And he had four times plotted it out and had dates that they were going to do it. And each time there was some hindrance to do it. And so March 23rd, they call, and this is the next year, 1941, they call a national day of prayer. And they have no idea what Hitler's doing. They just, you feel the growing menace. They felt the pending invasion of their country. And they do not have the capacity. They know they're going to make a fight. But, and they've been trying to build up their resources and their military strength. They have all these fortifications on the beaches, but they don't, they need years to develop military materials. When they're going to cross over to Normandy, it's going to be two and a half years of buildup. And that includes the American machine building it up. They, right now, they are still extremely vulnerable and weak. And most people would say that Hitler has them in his mouth, all he needs to do is bite down. So why didn't he? That's when you look back in history like, well, why didn't he? That doesn't make any sense. Dr. Victor Pierce gives the description of what happened after this fourth day of prayer. A great earthquake created waves with terrific gales which blew Nazi ships 80 miles off course. Hitler changed his plans entirely as a result of the submarine earthquake. He gave up invading Britain and against all the advice of his generals, he turned his attention eastward to invade Russia. Now, Operation Barbarossa, which is Germans' attack on Soviet Russia, to most historians is going to be the statement to say that's what lost Hitler the war. So what you see is the very thing that's ultimately going to be the death knell to Hitler is the very decision he's going to make after this prayer. So this day of prayer is going to lead to him turning his gaze away from the easy prey, and he's going to turn it against his great enemy, the communists, which he considered all of them Jews, and he is going to, out of, not out of wisdom, all of his generals are like, you can't do this, you shouldn't do this, don't, don't do this. And he's going to, we're doing it. And that's going to ultimately lead to his destruction. His attack on the Soviet uh, Union is going to be his end. So it's interesting that that came after a day of prayer. Prayer call number five, crisis in the Mediterranean in the Middle East, September 3rd, 1942. So the very next day after this prayer at Palermo in the Mediterranean, the whole Italian fleet was sunk. And remember, Italy was a, was with the Axis powers, was with, with Hitler, so that's a good thing. <laughs> in the North African desert, the Eighth Army under General Montgomery saved Egypt and therefore Israel, because there was a direct bead towards Israel at this time, from being invaded by Hitler's powerful tank commander, Rommel, who at that point was unstoppable. And so what we see is actually Israel even being spared in this same thing. All of this is happening after a day of prayer. Prayer call number six, the Italian crisis, September 3rd, 1943. Italy surrendered to the Allies that very night, and the dictator Mussolini was captured. And so you see this even switching. Now, the reason they had this particular prayer day was actually as the uh, four-year anniversary of uh, the war starting. But what happens as a result of it is Italy <laughs> surrenders to the Allies the next day, or that very night, and the dictator Mussolini is captured. And Mussolini, when the war started, was one deadly foe. And it's weird because he's going to peter out to the end where you're almost making fun of him. And he's a buffoon. 
uh, because he's captured and then he's rescued by Hitler and then he becomes Hitler's puppet and everyone started treating him like, you've got to be kidding. Are you the uh, fearful Mussolini? It's just really interesting to see this fall and this failure, but to recognize that it was after a day of prayer is also extremely interesting in history. Prayer call number seven, praying for D-Day. They did, the guy didn't give a date uh, for the day of prayer. It just was for D-Day, uh, which no one knew the day or the hour for D-Day, so I guess it makes sense, but you'd think they would have given me a date other than spring of 1944, so sorry about that, guys. This is a quote from Dwight Eisenhower about, and I, I've got, I went through D-Day and how supernatural it was. I mean, it's a remarkable story, and there's terrible weather, which is going to put off uh, D-Day, and they have... The weather forecasters for the British are going to say that there's a 24-hour pocket of clear weather. And the Germans have actually got all the leadership have gone home because their weather forecaster says that it's not going to clear up for the next two weeks. So as a result, all the officers uh, that are right along the French coastline are all going to go back home. Uh, And they're taking a break because, hey, they're not going to invade now. And yet Eisenhower is going to make a decision based on this meteorologist to say, Let's do it. And that is so, everything's risked in this because it's an amphibious landing. And when you have bad weather in the English Channel, you're possibly going to lose hundreds of thousands of soldiers just in the ocean, let alone on the beaches. And, but he goes for, it's a huge decision. He had already written a letter, by the way, I don't know if you guys remember, already written a letter saying, you know, if it failed, it's all my fault. The men fought heartily. (laughs) They hadn't even fought yet. The men fought heartily, but I made the mistake. He had already written it because it was such a delicate situation. Listen to what Dwight says, who was uh, supreme commander over uh, the Normandy invasion and, of course, president of the United States in the years to come. If there was nothing else in my life to prove the existence of an almighty and merciful God, the events of the next 24 hours did it, June 5th to June 6th, 1944. The greatest break in a terrible outlay of weather occurred next day and allowed that great invasion to proceed. Dr. Victor Pierce says, my memory of that seventh national day of prayer is that the nation did not turn out for prayer in the same overwhelming numbers as on previous occasions. What was the reason? Was it, the fear of, was it that the fear of defeat had vanished? If so, it would be typical of the human nature, unfortunately. So it's interesting because the troops that were about to go into Normandy, they turned out for prayer in droves, but the people of Great Britain didn't. It was like far less turnout, and that's what he remembers. It's, he's just giving memories. I don't know that he has any data for it, but it's just like, yeah, it was just interesting. Not as many people turned out. And so he's just making a comment that was it, the, was it that the fear of defeat had vanished? If so, it would be typical of human nature, unfortunately. Earlier in the war, everybody understood the hopelessness of our situ- situation and fled to God for deliverance. Even newspapers had given tips on how to pray. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> Second Chronicles. So as you, remember I said the if-then principle in Scripture is that if my people humble themselves and they pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. There's a process that leads to a then. You're gonna see this same pattern throughout scripture and I'm just gonna pick out a, a few of them. Second Chronicles 33, 12 through 13, and when he was in affliction, this is Manasseh, who had been doing all sorts of evil, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him. Do you guys see a, a pattern here? This is interesting. The, 
and he was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. So what you see is Manasseh, who is guilty of great crimes, is going to recognize his great crimes. He is going to humble himself. He is going to pray. He's going to turn away from those great crimes, and God is going to restore his kingdom. He's going to heal the land. Well, there it is right there. That is exactly the same principle. Deuteronomy 4, 29 through 31. So this is, uh, Deuteronomy is going to be that pattern. It's the rehearsal of the law uh, given to the new generation uh, after the uh, first generation has died in the wilderness. Now you have the rehearsal of what God has said previously being spoken afresh. But if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, if you have stumbled into a place where you have disobeyed the Lord, if you find yourself in a place where you have transgressed, if but if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him. If thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. When thou art in tribulation and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God and shall be obedient unto his voice, he will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he swore unto them. Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 3. So this is going to be near the end of the book of Deuteronomy. You're going to have the passing off of the mantle of authority from Moses to Joshua. You have a pattern for the kingdom. You know what's happening. You're taking this new territory. You're about to go in. And he is given this pattern of blessing and cursing. And so if this people are going to actually begin to see the ramifications of what happens if you live in sin and these curses are coming upon you, God still is going to say the same thing. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call to them, them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Listen to this. This is Admiral David Beatty, a British uh, man over the uh, British Naval Forces. In 1916, during World War I, he is going to make this statement. This is right smack in the middle. World War I is going to end in 1918. World War I is a disaster of disasters. World War II is a very difficult tale, and there's a lot of death and a lot of loss. World War I is like human butchery. It's hard to describe, but trench warfare and what the circumstances were and what these soldiers were subject to is like hard to even comprehend. It was so bad. And many war historians would say probably the worst place maybe in all of history would be to be in a trench during World War I. <laughs> in all of history. That's how bad these circumstances were. Now, this guy obviously was on the ocean, so you, know, you could say, what does he know? However, he's, he's caught up in the midst of this morass, this impossible-to-win battle. It is, when you're in trench war, they're not getting anywhere. They just have a year-long battle in the same spot, and they, don't, you know, they move 10 feet and move back 10 feet. It's like, this is ridiculous, and they lost 100,000 people in that movement of 10 feet forward and back. What good is this? And it felt so futile. And this is the statement made in the midst of this seeming futility of loss of life. That's why they're going to say never again after World War I. We never want to go through this again. 
when she, Great Britain, can look out on the future with humbler eyes and a prayer on her lips, then we can begin to count the days toward the end. So Great Britain, you want to see this come to an end? I think we need to actually humble ourselves, and we need to pray. And that's exactly what they're going to do. They're actually going to eventually call a national day of prayer in Great Britain, one of them. They only have one in the entire war. And it's going to actually begin to bring about the end of the war in, in months from that point forward. You're going to just see everything begin to uh, come to a conclusion. And I, as I'm going through this, <clears throat> the benefit of something like this isn't the historical data. It's, what good is it? Who cares if God supplied manna in the wilderness for 40 years for a people? Why does that matter to us other than as a factoid that we can stick into our biblical scholarship unless it affects us today? Do we know that God cares for his own? Do we know that he supplies in the wilderness season? What good is it to know that God's going to part the, the Jordan River and they're going to walk across on dry land? What, why, does, why do these things matter unless they impact us personally? What's the good of hearing some promise that he's going to make to Solomon and, you know, about the temple and you know, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal their land? Why does that matter to us unless it is the same God speaking to us with the same heartbeat, the same if-then basis of relationship with us. And so as a result, we need to recognize the same thing. We have a crisis that we are in the middle of. We have struggled to know how to pray. I don't know what it would have been like to be in Great Britain. I'm just trying to put myself in the situation of recognizing that there's imminent invasion on our shores of a terrible evil. And I can imagine, just imagine how a Christian would pray if it's us. Lord, please stop Hitler from being able to invade somehow, some way. But if he does, give us the grace to stand as Christians. But if he does, give us the grace to live boldly for you and to die well, to stand for truth. And we're in an exact situation. We don't know how to pray. All we have is the Romans 8 groan. <laughs> we're like, God, I, do you want the church to go through a season of persecution in this country, is that a benefit? I and mean, you could imagine in Great Britain, we could use, I could imagine a Great Britain uh, mindset of saying in the church, if, if I was in Great Britain in those days, I could say, you know, it could be really good for us to be under Nazi rule for a season <laughs> and to be thrown into concentration camps because it might humble us, right? It might awaken us to our need for God. And yet you're gonna see God intervene and save the land. He is going to spare that nation, which was not necessarily, I mean, I know we want to call it a godly nation. Well, compared to Germany at the time, yes, I would, I would say it that way. Compared to Soviet Russia, oh yes. Compared to Italy, mm-hmm. It was a godly nation comparatively, but it would, it would have been nominal, Christian, but they are being stirred up. There was a lot of form and a lot of religion in Great Britain at that time, yet they are going to be stirred, and you're going to see God supernaturally intervene on behalf of a people that is far from perfect. And if you were to study them in the 1930s, they're a decadent people. I mean, you could understand why God would bring judgment on 1939 Great Britain. And yet 1940 to 1945 Great Britain is considered the greatest generation ever. 
throughout history. Now, I don't know that they were. That's, God's, that's not God's opinion. That's history's opinion. That's the greatest generation ever. Yeah, because of how they stood against Nazism. It's impressive, but that's because they were desperate. Sometimes it really helps to be made desperate. It's a gift in a strange way to be made desperate. So we as the church of Jesus Christ have Operation Sea Lion that is staring down across the English Channel at us right now. We have an imminent threat, lawlessness, fear, deception. Ancient spiritual operations that are used to ruling this territory known as North America, this is their old stomping grounds. They want it back. And as a result, here we are, the church, and I don't know if there's going to be a call to a, you know, a national call to prayer, and even if there was, would we actually feel a burden as a nation right now? Because we don't have a threat from the outside. Our threat is from the inside. It makes it very paralyzing. And it's very, we have a very disunified nation right now. We are not as Great Britain. You know that in Great Britain during World War II, you have never seen such governmental unity as you did during. It's a remarkable study just in and of itself because they had a common foe, they knew the evil of it, and they all recognized that they had been taken advantage of by this, the whole Neville Chamberlain era, and they were upset, and they were ready to spend all of their blood, all of their energies, all of their resources to see it stopped. Boy, it was a great rallying point. We don't have that same luxury right now. A civil war is a very, very different thing. However, and this is the point I would want to make. The promise of God, the if-then promise, doesn't depend upon those factors being exactly aligned as it was in World War II. It's if my people, not if people, but if my people who are called by my name. I'm not waiting for king in parliament to call a national day of prayer. I mean, it's pretty remarkable to see the impact of prayer, and it's pretty amazing when king and parliament recognize the need to call upon God. They're so moved that they're actually going to institute Christian teaching in every school, compulsory. don't know if that's ever been found to be a good thing, by the way. The old Constantine process of, of you know, compulsory Christianity has never been a good thing, but it's impressive to see a nation say, what do we need to do to honor God? I like that. I think that's pretty impressive. And so there's a principle here that I want to hit at with our final slide. James 4.10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. I'm only one person. I can only do the humbling of one person. <laughs> but I think each one of us just needs to start with us. And even though we've been saying that for months now, it's still the truth that we are responsible for us. I can't be responsible for a nation out there and their response. I know that there are so many Christians right now that are going through this same process. I know that we are not the only people. And so as a result, I do believe that God is hearing our prayers. And I do trust him no matter what outcomes we have in the upcoming months and years. If it is to get harder, he will give us greater grace. If it is to create another season where the, the submarine earthquake deters Hitler from coming this direction, instead distracts him and he goes somewhere else, and we have a season 
What are we going to do with that season? That's my number one question to my own soul and to the church. What are we going to do? If we had another season with an open window, would we actually use it? Because I don't know that we've used these last four years, which supposedly we had a season of freedom. Have we used that? So my concern is if we're going to ask for another season of reprieve, I think we also need to dedicate ourselves afresh to say, God, we are ready to be used in uncomfortable ways. And I want us to be ready like lions in a cage, ready to pounce, ready to spring to action. And I want to do it now, not just after uh, we see events unfold in the upcoming weeks and months. I want us to be ready to be Christians today. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Father, I have an acute burden for our nation, specifically for the church in our nation. And Lord, I feel like my burden is without clear enunciation most of the time. It's just an ache. It's a desire for reviving. It's a desire for a humbling. It's for a desire for a turning away from wickedness. It's a desire for a purging of each of us that none of us would be able to escape the bright, hot searchlight of the Holy Spirit, but that we would be refreshed as the body and that that which remains would be strengthened before it dies. Lord, here we are, your saints, and we ask that you would work mightily in us and through us. And Lord, we ask that you would heal our land that you would intervene in Operation Sea Lion to push back this invasion of darkness upon our shores. Lord Jesus, we love you and we trust you. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.